The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Critical minerals are, well, critical to making electric batteries and therefore to decarbonizing the economy. But what are we willing to give up to get them? On today's podcast, we head up about as far north as you can go to look at a mining project that may be sweeping away a whole way of life. Hello, and welcome back once again to Parts Per Billion, the environmental podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So today we have another story for you about the trade-offs we're going to have to make to get the zinc, cobalt, and other minerals essential to an electric economy. But in this case, the costs aren't necessarily environmental, but more cultural. High up in northern Alaska, on a latitude higher up than Iceland, is Amber Metals Bornite Camp. The company thinks there may be a motherload of copper and maybe also a lot of critical minerals in this vast, unexplored, often forgotten part of the country. But to really figure that out, they need a road. Because this camp is so remote, it's actually not connected to any roads. So Ambler Metals has applied to the Interior Department to build a more than 200-mile road to improve access to these untapped resources. And while the department hasn't decided whether to okay this yet, the Biden administration has been crystal clear that it thinks solving climate change will involve sourcing a lot more of these materials and sourcing them domestically. But even though this area is almost totally off the grid, there are people living here, tens of thousands of them. Native Alaskans have been living off the land here for centuries, and many of them fear that road access could pierce the fragile and isolated ecosystem that they rely on. Bloomberg Law's Bobby McGill was granted a rare opportunity to actually visit the Bornite camp and see what Ambler Metals is up to, and to see how the native villagers live. I brought him into the studio to learn about what he saw there, and I started by asking him why the Alaskan ecosystem is so fragile. Yeah, it's complicated, but it's called Arctic amplification, and though there are other factors involved and other possible explanations, scientists generally think it boils down to this, which is that global warming is quickly melting the Arctic sea ice. And because the Arctic sea ice under normal conditions reflects the radiant heat from the sun back out into space, um, global warming, as it melts the sea ice, there's less sea ice to radiate that sunlight and the heat back into space, which means that the region warms up even more. That makes sense. It would be like if you had some sort of heat absorbing thing on your roof and that thing was slowly shrinking. And as it shrunk, your house got hotter or your roof got hotter. That's it's is it. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification. But is that essentially the idea? More or less. And, you know, it's a big deal up there because most of the most of the ground up there is frozen all year. When the perma- permafrost melts, there's a lot of like subsidence in the landscape. And it also creates a feedback. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot you could talk about there, but it's a really big deal up there. So, you know, if you've never been up there, you don't know what to expect. And I didn't really. Um, it's it's hard to know exactly what it is you're looking at. But as you drive around Fairbanks, you, you notice that a lot of the roads are in kind of bad shape. And that's, you know, from the beating they take in 40 below zero winter temperatures. But there's a lot of subsidence there, too. And it it's kind of a bumpy ride. So just to clarify what we're talking about here, the, the roads are cracking and they're and are, are essentially sinking because the ground below them, which is usually frozen, is now 
thawing. It is not frozen. Is, is that thawing. right? Right. And so, I mean, it's 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 one of the reasons, like on the on the north slope of Alaska, north of the Brooks Range, you have oil companies needing to use chillers to keep the ground, you know, frozen beneath their equipment all year. That yeah, and I mean that's just wild unto itself. The idea that you would need to use you know uh, machines to chill something that's in the the Arctic Circle, essentially, right, or really close to it. But let's back up a little bit. You know, we're talking about you know what's going on in Alaska. I want to talk about how you got to Alaska because I remember you and I were in a meeting. Uh, a couple months ago, and you said, hey, I just got this call uh, from this mining company. They want me to come up to Alaska, like, now. Um, tell me about how you wound up there and how this all came together. Yeah, so the deal is this. I went to, I've been wanting to write about the Ambler Mining District for a long time, and, you know, really the only way to to write about it is to actually see it. Um because this place is so remote, the only way to actually get into the to the mine is, or, or even around the mine for that matter, is, you know, the, the company needs to grant you access. Well, their operation there is seasonal, and uh, it turns out that I called them up right around the time that they were shutting down for the season. So they said, "Well, we'd love to have you up here, but um, you got to you got to do it next week." Wow! And uh, so I booked a flight and went. So you flew into Anchorage or Fairbanks, or where, where did you from DC to where? Uh, D.C. to Fairbanks through Seattle, and uh, I jumped on a charter flight to a little place called Doll Creek. It's a gravel airstrip about 300 miles or so northwest of, of Fairbanks. And as you're flying between, you know, the two places, there's no, um, I mean, you can, it, it's it's a roughly two-hour flight. You don't see any sort of, there are no roads down there. There's no power lines. There's It's all wilderness down below. So tell me what the uh, accommodations were like here. I imagine that, you know, we're not talking Hiltons or uh, Marriott's, right? No. I mean, when I say that Bornite is a mining exploration camp, it's literally a camp. It's, you know, all the workers there stay in tents. Wow. Um, and there are these platform tents. I was a Boy Scout when I was a kid, and so... <laughs> that makes, I, that, makes know, one, you, that makes one of us. You get, uh, you know, you're familiar with what... If you've ever worked on like a Boy Scout camp staff, you understand what a platform tent is like. This is kind of like that, except it's slightly insulated. It looks like a space blanket on the inside. And, uh, you know, there are little signs inside warning you about bears and whatnot. So, um, you know, but it's a real tent. They had a it's got electricity. They had a, a heater that that warmed up the uh, the tent by a couple of degrees. And so one of the guys I talked to was a Alaska telecommunications company um, satellite Internet repair guy who had flown in to fix the satellite internet, and which was down. And it's, it's interesting, the internet there, the, the network was called morale because they know if, you know, workers can't <laughs> communicate, that's well, going to that, be... that says it all. Yeah. Yeah, wow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, I'm glad you brought up the folks who work at, at the mine because I wanted to talk about them. Um, 
You know, it sounds like a lot of the workers who uh, work at Bornite are drawn from the local native villages uh, that are in and around that area. Um, tell me about the relationship between the native communities and this mine. So uh, as with everything um, in that part of the world, things are complicated. Uh, <laughs> right. So a lot of uh, Ambler Metals workers are uh, are from the native villages. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all the villages up there support the mine, because the issue is that those in favor see the jobs that this would create, um, because other mines in the region, the you know Red Dog Zinc Mine in northwest Alaska has has generated just tons and tons of jobs up there. There are villages scattered all around northern Alaska. There there aren't a lot of jobs, if any jobs, in in these villages, and so you know they rely on these mines for. Um, you know, for, for employment. Well, let's hear from one of those actual uh, workers themselves. Uh, Bobby, you spoke with Clara Newland, who uh, lives in a native village and, and works on the Fortnite mine. Here's what she had to say about working there. Local, it's very important for our income because we don't have very many local jobs available at home. So it's good for us. Most of the people that come up here and work. It is a sacrifice that we make, but it's Good. So, uh, Bobby, as you just heard Clara say, you know, this is a really economically depressed part of the country. You know, it's very rural, very sparsely populated. But you also spoke with uh, several other people who are villagers who say, no, 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 this is not economically depressed. We're just kind of off the grid. We, uh, you know, live off the land. We engage in subsistence farming and hunting. Can you explain that a little bit? What's that perspective? Here's the thing. It's sort of both because to give you an idea of what, of how remote this region is, like Bornite and all of these mines are literally hundreds of miles off the North American roadway network. And so all of these villages, they're either along rivers and they they might rely on barges for, for supplies if they can't get a barge because, you know, for all manner of, of seasonal and environmental reasons, you know they rely on on air travel as the only way in and out. So these are these are very traditional communities. They literally live off the land in part because they have to, but also because it's it's the basis of their culture. I think one thing that really came through in your story for me was just the ambivalence that a lot of these people feel about the mine and specifically about the road that would uh, connect the the mine to the rest of the the road network. Uh, you spoke with Angel Stickman, who is uh, a former uh, resident of these native villages we're talking about, now lives in Fairbanks. And she said, you know what? Living in a subsistence kind of fashion is one way of fighting off inflation. Looking at the example of inflation, I feel like people who live in rural villages are the luckiest and will survive because they got their fish, they got their water, they got their moose, they got their caribou, they got their berries. And here in Fairbanks... It's like I'm depending 100% on the stores, right? For the last, like, three months, I've been living on only chicken and beef. Yeah, I heard that a lot from folks. Um, you know, they were recounting stories about the Great Depression and the the 2008 recession. Um, and they said, you know, we didn't even know that was going on because, you know, we've we've got all the resources we need up here, they said. You know, the the issue is that... If you grant greater access to mines up there by building a 211-mile road, you're, you're going to damage the the subsistence economy, so to speak, in which 
you know, which which relies on, you know, uh, these caribou herds and other wildlife that migrate across the Arctic. And uh, if you do anything to damage these intact ecosystems, it really, really damages the the ability, you know, for for these tribes to to be able to sustain themselves. One of the the most kind of compelling pieces of your story is when you spoke with Luke Wood, who is another native Alaskan who does work at at Bornite. Um, And let's hear from him. He's talking about how the difference between his generation and his father's generation about their views on modernization and and subsistence. Our elders are like, no, but my generation, younger generation, for employment is for it. Mm -hmm. If my father was alive, he would be against it because he is a man of the land. He totally is 110% subsistence. Mm-hmm. He provides for my mom's side of family and other families for subsistence. Moose, caribou, bear, fish. Um, it's not like where people that are from the cities where they can go Fred Myers and cars and everything's already pre-packaged $6 a pound a meter or whatever. So it all depends on who you talk to. You can hear the ambivalence in in what he's saying there, in in that he thinks that, you know, subsistence is great, but ultimately, you know, it's better to have a job that pays a salary. Right. And he was pretty clear, actually. He um, of all the people I talked to, he was he was the one who who stated in the in the clearest terms that, you know, the trade off is worth it. He thinks and he said that he thinks that, you know, this is the subsistence lifestyle is on life support mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's it's a no brainer for him anyway to, you know, eventually be able to go to a grocery store and get your food rather than have to hunt for it. But that is not the predominant view up there. I mean, these folks are, are fighting for their culture. They're yeah. fighting for their their way of life. But finally, let's talk about something that we've talked about previously uh, on this podcast with other minds um just the idea that you know the people who are opposing this are sort of out on a limb here and what i mean by that is that you know the governor of alaska uh who you spoke with is in favor of building this road the white house uh has not come out in favor or against the road yet but the president has made very clear that he is a big fan of mining for minerals that would go into electric batteries and evs if you're trying to block this Who's who's on your side? Are you are you alone? Well, you know, the White House um, is trying to have it both ways in some in some ways. If you look at the Arctic strategy that it came out with um, back in October, it says that it it supports domestic minerals production and in, in, in specifically in Alaska, except that it wants it to be done in an environmentally sensitive way, in a way that does not harm native ways of life. And so, you know, there's a lot of caveats to support to this. Right. I mean, I think the the question that everyone has is that, is that even possible? And it's a good question. Um, If you talk to environmental groups, they basically told me, well, you know, there are other ways to get these metals. I mean, there's, we need to start, you know, recycling our, our minerals and, um, you know, diving into landfills to find um, precious metals there. Well, I get the sense that, you know, while that may produce some of the minerals we need to build these batteries and you know ultimately decarbonize that there could be you know huge amounts in Alaska yeah i mean 
they know that there are, that there are critical minerals up there. They don't know exactly how much or how many there are, in part because it's a state that is so large and so unexplored. It hasn't been fully mapped for critical minerals yet. The Biden administration is working on that. They're going to spend, you know, the better part of the next decade, you know, on a on a mapping project for this. But they do know that, you know, there are critical minerals deposits at in the Ambler Mining District, which is part of a 200 mile wide mineral belt. Um, there's a, you know, the largest graphite find in, in the country is up there at, uh, in Western Alaska. Graphite One is a company that's developing that. You know, there's the existing zinc mine that's in Northwest Alaska, which is, you know, slated to be expanded. So, um, you know, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, there's just a lot of excitement mainly because, you know, they know that there are these large, large deposits up there and, um, there's, there's likely to be a lot more to be found. All right. Well, that was Bobby McGill, uh, fully thought out after uh, his return from Alaska um, and uh, talking about what's going on up there. Bobby, uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. This was great. You bet. Anytime. And that's it for today's episode of Parts for a Billion. If you want more environmental news, check us out on Twitter. We use the handle at environment. I'm at David B. Schultz if you want to talk to me directly. Today's episode of Parts for Rebellion was produced by myself, David Schultz, with help from Greg Henderson and Jessica Coombs. Parts for Rebellion was created by Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle and is edited by Zach Sherwood and Chuck McCutcheon. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.